following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Well, good morning, church. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 today. Matthew chapter 6 as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount with the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Well, the Broadway musical Hamilton debuted in 2015 to virtually universal acclaim and box office success, winning 11 Tony Awards and the Pulitzer Prize for drama. So naturally, when it came to little old Greenville, South Carolina for the first time in 2018, tickets were in high demand. Y'all remember this? Man, I, I don't know about y'all, but, but you thought Taylor Swift tickets were bad, was getting bad, right? Like how hard that is. But Swifties ain't got nothing on the hammies, okay? I wasn't about to throw away my shot to be in the room where it happens, so I got to work, work, and somehow, by the grace of God, after hours in a virtual online waiting room, I was able to get enough tickets to take my mom and my brother to see it with me for Christmas that year. And if you haven't seen it, let me tell you, it is totally worth the hype. And if you've been living under a rock somewhere and you're not familiar with the plot, it focuses on the founding father, Alexander Hamilton, who was brilliant and so foundational in establishing our nation. But personally speaking, he was a bit of a scoundrel and a womanizer. He even had a thing for his wife Eliza's sister. But one day, while his family is out of town, Hamilton begins an adulterous relationship with Maria Reynolds, whose husband blackmails Hamilton, making Hamilton pay him money to keep the relationship quiet. But Hamilton's political opponents get wind that something sketchy is going on, and they accuse Hamilton of financial crimes. So to prove that he did not mismanage any government funds, he writes the Reynolds papers that fully disclose his adulterous relationship in all its sordid details, all in an attempt to preserve his own legacy and salvage some sort of political future. But in so doing, he publicly humiliates his wife Eliza and disgraces his family. So heartbroken and completely disoriented in her identity at this point, Eliza pours over all the letters she and Hamilton ever exchanged. She says, I'm searching and scanning for answers on every line for some kind of sign. And when you were mine, the world seemed to burn. She reflects on the scandal itself. She says, you published the letters she wrote you. You told the world how you brought this girl into our bed. In clearing your name, you have ruined our lives. Understandably, Eliza begins to take each love letter they've ever written each other and burns them one by one, saying, I'm erasing myself from the narrative. Let future historians wonder how Eliza reacted when you broke her heart. You have torn it all apart. I'm watching it burn. I'm burning the memories, burning the letters that might have redeemed you. You forfeit all rights to my heart. You forfeit the place in our bed. You'll sleep in your office instead with only the memories of when you were mine. I hope that you burn. Further grief is added to their marriage when their son is killed in a duel that his father could have prevented. So a further wedge is driven between Alexander and Eliza at this point. And in grief, Hamilton constantly and silently walks alone in the garden and around town, which is torture for him. He says, I've never liked the quiet before, but he begins to go to church. He says, and I pray that never used to happen before. And this leads to one of the most poignant scenes in the play. The chorus begins, if you see him in the street, 
walking by himself, talking to himself. Have pity. He is working through the unimaginable. Eliza, dressed in black, walks onto the stage, staring blankly away from Hamilton. In desperation, he cries to her, look at where we are. Look at where we started. I know I don't deserve you, Eliza, but hear me out. That would be enough. If I could spare his life, if I could trade his life for mine, he'd be standing right here now and you would smile. And that would be enough. I don't pretend to know the challenges we're facing. I know there's no replacing what we've lost and you need time, but I'm not afraid. I know who I married. Just let me stay here by your side. That would be enough. And then the chorus changes ever so slightly. It says, if you see him in the street, walking by her side, talking by her side, have pity. He's trying to do the unimaginable. See them walking in the park long after dark, taking in the sights of the city. They are trying to do the unimaginable. Eliza's sister Angelica enters and narrates the rest of the scene for us. She says there are moments that the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. We push away what we could never understand. We push away the unimaginable. She says they are standing in the garden, Alexander by Eliza's side. She takes his hand. Forgiveness, can you Imagine, in that moment of forgiveness, as Eliza would go on to say at the end of the play, I put myself back into the narrative. I don't know who you might relate to more in that narrative, Alexander or Eliza, but all of us at one time or another have been both. We've been the one who had to choose to forgive, and we've been the one who needed to be forgiven. Maybe you came in here this morning currently in one of those categories. Perhaps the thought of forgiving or being forgiven feels unimaginable. I ask you the same question raised in Hamilton, forgiveness. Can you imagine? Jesus wants us to not only imagine forgiveness, he wants us to experience and to practice forgiveness. Indeed, he's going to show us its centrality to the good life and to the Christian walk as he continues in his model prayer. Because after aligning our hearts with God by praying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will to be, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus led us to apply our vertical alignment then to our horizontal relationships and life on earth. So he taught us to pray for our daily bread a physical need with spiritual implications. But now he's going to deal with the issue of forgiveness, which is a spiritual need that has physical or material ramifications. And so he teaches us to pray this in Matthew 6, 12. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice, first of all here, the cost of sin, the cost of sin. Man, when we mess up, our natural instinct is to minimize it or to shift blame to someone else. That's what our ancestors did in the garden. They listened to the crafty words of the serpent. They thought disobeying God on this one point was small. And then when they got busted with how big their action was, then the finger started pointing in all the directions. It was the serpent. It was the woman. No, it was God. But when it comes to sin, Jesus doesn't minimize or deflect. What does he call it? Not mistakes, 
not whoopsies, not errors in judgment. He calls them debts. That's a financial term, meaning that you have put yourself in a position in which you owe something. Now, financially speaking, this could be because you reached an arrangement. You borrowed something that you are paying back. That's not quite the type of debt Jesus has in mind here. He's talking about another type of debt, one in which someone is at a loss because of your actions, whether on purpose or by accident. And you owe them. And it's one thing when, it's, when that something is replaceable, like you drop a glass at a friend's house. You can just go to Walmart, pick up a new one, right? But a debt is far more complicated and weighty when what is lost is one of a kind or something that you are financially unable to pay for. A family heirloom, a collector's item. How does one even begin to pay for a debt like that. Maybe you can work out some sort of agreement of sorts to make some sort of amends. Maybe your friend graciously refuses any compensation, but undeniably there is a cost involved and somebody has to pay it. But then there are issues that go far beyond a material debt to an emotional or a spiritual debt, much like Alexander and Eliza. He can't undo his betrayal He can't bring their son back. How could he repay such a debt? What he has taken away from Eliza, he can't. And we know this on a, or fundamentally on a human level. We've all experienced this. Someone has to pay for every action done. And in, if the action is severe enough, payment might even need to happen in regard to incarceration or capital punishment. And if that's true in human relationships, how much more true is that in our relationship with God? When Adam and Eve rejected the rule and the reign of God in the garden, they committed the highest act of treason. And in so doing, they not only defied God's righteous standard. The Bible speaks also about how deeply grieved God is over our sin. How then could they ever repay him for what they had done? They can't. And as their descendants, that debt has been transferred to us. That is, we are all sinners by nature. But also, as those who have sinned from the moment of our conception, we have not only been unable to pay down the original debt, we've added to the debt with our own transgression. Friends, there is no way we can pay back the debt of our sin. This is why it would be insulting to think we can just make up for what we've done by trying to do some good things in our lives. First of all, your debt is infinite. So even if you could somehow stop sinning today, listen, the damage has already been done. Second, because your debt is infinite, even if you could do some good things, it's just a drop in the ocean. But on top of that, even your good things are tainted by your sin nature. So even in doing good, you're still racking up debt. There is no getting out of your debt problem here. That's why the wage, ah, another financial term in scripture, the wage of your sin is death. That's the cost of your sin. The cost is death. Do you see then the power of Jesus telling us to pray, forgive us our debts? Notice he doesn't ask God to think about it. He doesn't ask God to weigh some options about it. No, he says it with the same boldness and surety he had when he told God to hollow his name, to let his kingdom come, to let his will be done, to give us daily bread. As Jesus requests this, the assumption is that, of course, God will forgive 
all those who ask him. Friends, is that not good news this morning? But how? How? When we've sinned so grievously against him, when we have so offended the God of the universe, how could he forgive us? Well, first of all, we see that throughout Scripture that God in his very nature and character is a God who delights in forgiving. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? 1 Peter 3.9, The Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, friend, that is good news. The God of the universe desires to forgive you. He wants to show you mercy. He wants to show you grace. And you might be thinking, well, great, then why doesn't he just do it? Why doesn't he just let us off the hook? If he wants to forgive us, why doesn't he just forgive us? Listen, because there is a debt. There is a cost for our sins that needs to be paid. God cannot compromise on that truth and that necessity because God is not only fully merciful, he is also fully just. So having the desire to forgive our debt, how can he also maintain his justice by not ignoring the debt that we owe? Well, Romans 3 gives us that answer. Verse 24, it says this, that we are justified. That is, we are declared not guilty, no longer having our sins held against us. How are we justified? By his grace as a gift. It is not by any works that we have done. It's not by anything good we could do. It is God's act of grace. It is a gift. How? Through the redemption. That is another financial term, meaning to repay or to buy back. So God has bought us back. How? Be in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. He is a propitiation by his blood. That's significant. Why? Because the wage of sin is death. Something had to die. That something is Jesus. To be received by Faith. Again, it is by grace through faith, not by works. It says this was to show God's righteousness or his justice because in his, divi- his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It's saying that, you know, even before Jesus died on the cross, God had forgiven people by faith in the Old Testament. It says they believed and it was credited, that's another financial term, it was credited to them as righteousness. So God is having to now pay for that, right? God is now making good on that credit. He is now making good on that debt for their sins through the cross of Jesus. It says it was to show his righteousness at this present time. Aren't you thankful that God is still forgiving? He has paid for your sins so that he might be just, that is he maintains his standard of justice and the justifier. That is, he is the one who forgives sin, listen, of everyone who has faith in Jesus. Hallelujah. Man, how does God maintain his laws of justice and extend his heart for mercy? The answer is for all who believe, God absorbs the cost of sin himself. 
on the cross, sinless Jesus, fully man, and thereby serving as our, as our human representative, took on the full justice of God, absorbing the wrath of the sin of mankind, paying the debt that we owed that we could never repay. But also, as fully God, he demonstrated the full love of God, who loved us so much that he sent his only son. Listen, in order to forgive us, God himself had to absorb the cost, and oh, that cost was great. In in fact, only God himself could afford the cost. But listen, when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, that day he declared, it is finished. Meaning, it is paid in full. As one great hymn put it, O love of God, O sin of man, in this dread act, your strength is tried and victory remains with love. Jesus, our Lord, is crucified. Justice and mercy come together fully at the cross. Oh friend, do you see the good news there? That the God of justice satisfied the demands of justice so that the God of love could rescue and redeem all who believe. Listen, I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, no matter how great is your sin, his mercy is greater. Not because he ignores or overlooks your sin, but because at great personal cost, indeed the death of his only son, he took all your sin upon himself and he paid your debt in full so that he could fully forgive you, so that he could completely save you, so that he could make you his own. And if he has saved you, my friend, listen, there is no going back. You have been justified. You have been washed clean. You have been forgiven. You have been set free to live the good life. Paul says this in Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Friends, that is good news. That means for all who have truly turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, there is no longer a need to fear the wage of sin. Sure, there may be consequences from your actions that you may have to live with for the rest of your life here, but if you are in Christ, there is nothing left to condemn you. Never, ever, ever. In fact, Jesus is at the right hand of God right now, interceding on your behalf. Pastor Tim Kell explains this further, what this means. He says, the cross does not merely provide a temporary respite from condemnation. We are told that Christ stands before the Father as our legal representative, our advocate. What this means is that the law wants our enemy, which demanded our punishment. Why? Because we are law breakers, now becomes our friend, demanding our acceptance. How so? Because the law has been perfectly fulfilled in our substitute Jesus. And so now it would be unjust for God to turn on us. For God to punish us for any sin would be to exact two payments for the same debt since Jesus already paid it. Now Jesus stands before the Father in a sense demanding not only mercy but 
justice for us. We have both his law and his love for us. That means, he says, we could not be more secure. Do you see the glory of that this morning? That's why 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is not only faithful to forgive our sins, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh friend, we are secure indeed if we are in Christ. But we are also secure because not only has our debt been paid, but also because we have received all of Christ's righteousness. That's why we get to experience the bounties of what the Apostle Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ, which is why the second half of this verse is likewise important. It says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Al Mohler rightly points out that we should notice this does not say forgive us our debts because we have forgiven our debtors, but forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This is important because as we've already seen, there is nothing we can do to earn forgiveness. We know we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. The connection between divine forgiveness here and our forgiveness of others is that the latter proceeds from the former. We don't forgive to earn forgiveness. We forgive because we have been forgiven. In other words, as we have experienced God's forgiveness, the only proper response for a disciple of Jesus is likewise to forgive others. Which leads to our second point this morning, the generous response. The generous response. See, there's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 of a servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. Now, some have pointed out that this would be roughly the equivalent of 400 billion, with a B, billion dollars today. Obviously, there is no way that this servant could ever pay his master back this amount. So the master orders him and his family to be thrown into prison. But the servant pleads for mercy. The master pities him, forgives the debt, absorbing this enormous financial loss himself. So you'd think that servant would just be overwhelmed by the generosity of his master, who has not only saved his life, but also the life of his family. I mean, if this were a Charles Dickens tale, he'd be running through the street helping every tiny Tim he passes. But instead, instead, the first fellow servant he sees who owes him a couple of bucks, he grabs and chokes and says, pay back what you owe. And the fellow servant likewise pleads for mercy, promising to pay him back. But the forgiven servant throws his fellow servant in prison. When word gets back to the master, he hauls the forgiven servant back in and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the servant, it says, is thrown into prison. And in light of this story, Jesus promises, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, Jesus wants us to see the absolute absurdity of experiencing God's grace and not extending that grace to others. That's why he also says in the verses immediately following the Lord's Prayer, For if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, Jesus' point here is not that you forgive in order to be forgiven. His point is that it is impossible to have experienced the forgiveness of God and not in turn have a forgiving spirit toward others. Why? Because my debt was far greater than $400 billion dollars. I owed the eternal God of the universe an infinite debt, and he forgave me. Therefore, as I have experienced the generosity of God and been made one with Christ, how can I not be generous like God in response? The truth is, you can't. Because no matter how great the evil was that was done against you, it is small in comparison to the debt you owed God. Moreover, Jesus has taught us to pray for God to forgive not only my debts, but what? Our debts. So if Jesus has also paid for their debts, if they believe, how can I not forgive them as he has already forgiven them? So just as you repent of any other sin when you respond in faith to Jesus, so too as a disciple do you forsake the way of the world that demands revenge and cancellation and retaliation, and you instead seek to render peace and reconciliation. Otherwise, as R.T. France has noted, the prayer for God's forgiveness is insincere when it comes from an unforgiving disciple. Because a truly forgiven person desires to forgive. So when you've been wronged, you choose, like God, to absorb the cost. And you're able to do this not only because your own debt has been canceled, along with potentially theirs, but also because you have access to the master's bountiful storehouses of mercy. And you have the joy of knowing Christ himself. That's why Keller also says this. He says, spiritually and emotionally, Christians are like the wealthy, not the poor, if we only grasp what the gospel tells us about who we are and will be in Christ. You can look at an offender and say, you cannot ruin me because you can't ultimately rob me of my real wealth and goods. Having experienced the power of forgiveness, we likewise now have the power to forgive and we must forgive. Everyone, no matter how grave the offense. As C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. But this doesn't mean it will be easy. In fact, forgiveness is often hard. We often associate it with a feel-good sentiment, and that may eventually come, but some wounds cut deep. But listen, forgiveness is not first and foremost a feeling. It is an act of the will. It's saying rather than making you pay for something you did to me, I'm going to absorb the cost myself. In other words, that means instead of trying to find a way to get even, either by aggressively attacking you or passive-aggressively withdrawing from you, instead of stoking fears of anger and hatred and bitterness when I think of you or when you come around, I'm actually going to seek your good. And to the extent that it is possible, I'm going to work toward reconciliation in our relationship. Now notice, this is important. Nowhere is Jesus saying forgiveness means just pretending nothing's wrong or acting like a would-be martyr. We've already seen that's not how God operates in his forgiveness. He didn't just pretend like everything was okay. He took sin so seriously that he was willing to die to free you from it. 
That's why Jesus says this in Luke 17, 3. He says, when someone sins against us, we should, first of all, pay attention to yourselves. In other words, he's saying, don't go into fight or flight mode. You are called to make peace. You have a mission from God to make peace. So before I talk to anyone, I better check my own heart. I better forgive in my own heart. See if there's any bitterness that I need to repent of. I need to make the choice to forgive before I engage. And after it's paid attention to myself, it says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. In other words, don't turn a blind eye to sin. Address it kindly with a desire for repentance and reconciliation for shalom. And it says, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him him. See, just like God did for us, God is calling us to show both justice and mercy by entering into forgiveness and reconciliation. We lovingly address sin and then we seek to forgive sin. Tim Keller also wisely points out here that it is not enough to forgive perpetrators. You must also point out the injustice they have done. On the other hand, it is also not enough just to seek justice. If you don't forgive, then you will go beyond justice into vengeance and so not free yourself from what they have done. But, you might think, it says if they repent, we forgive. Well, good. That crosses a lot of people off my list. But no, that's not the spirit of this verse. As we've already seen in the Lord's Prayer and Jesus' explanation that follows it, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says this, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus here isn't giving conditions for forgiveness. Instead, Jesus here is giving us the general process in which we act in seeking to make peace and to reconcile. We first check our own hearts and resolve to forgive. Then we approach our brother or sister in love and bring up the issue. Hopefully he or she will then turn from their sin. And then forgiveness can culminate by bringing about reconciliation to the relationship. But listen, even if the person does not repent, we still need to forgive in the sense that we hold no ill will toward him him or her, and we still seek to do him or her good whenever possible, resolving not to attack back either actively or passively. Nevertheless, I want to be clear about this. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences for actions in this life. For instance, there is no contradiction in both forgiving someone and seeking justice when something of a criminal or predatory nature has occurred. Listen, if someone has murdered someone you love, it is not wrong to seek his imprisonment even as you show him mercy in your attitude and treatment of him. First of all, bringing him to justice in a court of law is an act of love toward your fellow neighbors, preventing him from doing the same thing to them. But second, when done with the right motive, again, not seeking revenge, but seeking his good, it is also an act of love toward him. 
Why? Because his greatest problem is not that he is facing prison time. His greatest problem is that he is a sinner under the wrath of a holy God facing eternal hell. So if I truly love him and desire his good, I should desire that he be confronted with the gravity of his sin, that he might run from his sin and into the arms of the only one who can save him. Rachel Den Hollander, who is a Christian lawyer and a former gymnast who was sexually assaulted by the USA Gymnastics physician Larry Nasser, explained this well in a paper she co-wrote with her husband Jacob. They said the temporal nature of human justice serves as a picture of God's final justice. It presents the abuser an opportunity to come face to face with the reality and the severity of his sin. It is a call to the abuser to repent, to side with both God and their victim and condemn the evil they have perpetrated. Truly repentant abusers who have come to side with God and their victims do not use their repentance as an excuse to escape human justice or make demands of their victims. No, true repentance involves acknowledging the harm they have done and the rightness of the punishment. Because again, the most loving thing you can do for someone is help them to recognize and repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. And Rachel Den Hollander exemplified this when she spoke directly to Nasser after his conviction during his sentencing hearing. She said, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Friends, that's powerful. There are consequences in this life that is not the opposite of mercy. So many in the church have forgotten this. In misguided love, they may seek to quickly move past a sin, even an egregious sin, in the spirit of forgive and forget, thereby enabling someone to continue in their sin. But if we truly love, we need to help people truly deal with their sin by letting God use the consequences of sin to open their eyes to their need for him. Friends, we need both mercy and justice. That's also why we say forgiveness requires reconciliation to the extent that it is possible. Some things, though they may be forgiven, prevent full reconciliation to take place, at least on this side of heaven. For instance, it would be unwise for Den Hollander to ever be in the presence of Nasser again because of the nature of his sin against her. Likewise, if Nasser were to repent and trust in Jesus, he should still stay in prison. Or if released, he should still have the restrictions on him in public as a sex offender. He can certainly be forgiven, but there are still consequences. And if he pushes back against those restrictions, you have to wonder if there has been true repentance. In the same way, a deep betrayal or deception is going to require extended time for trust to be built back up and for full restoration of a relationship, if that is ever possible. But listen, a truly repentant person will be willing to do the hard work of earning back that trust. Those are extreme situations, and they're important ones for us to think through. But listen, let's be real. Most acts of forgiveness aren't so extreme. 
the problem for most of us is not that we can't reconcile, it's that we won't reconcile. But friends, that sounds more like what comes out of a heart of stone than a heart that has been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, that has been born again by the Holy Spirit, awakened to the good life, that has been made new. Because as we've seen, a new heart is poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, it's hard to come at someone for their sin when you're mindful of how great your own sin is. A new heart mourns where shalom has been fractured, moving beyond shedding one's own tears to wiping them away from another's eyes. A new heart moves forward in meekness, not ruled by their emotions, but governed by the Holy Spirit. A new heart yearns for righteousness to reconcile sinners with God and others. A new heart is merciful, overcoming evil with good. A new heart is pure in its pursuit of God's will. And we see here that God's will is to forgive. And a new heart seeks to make peace. And blessed are those who make peace, for they are called sons of God. And like their father, they delight to forgive and to restore what is broken. To do what in a fallen world is unimaginable. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? We pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.